Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Our favorite pastimes were riding a horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said. Farm boy, fill these with water. Please. As you wish. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. Come, boy. Fetch me that picture. kissing book. <laughs> well, good morning again. Welcome to Hope, everyone. Glad you're here. If you haven't noticed already by now, uh, we are in full vacation Bible school mode. We start tomorrow, which is really exciting. VBS is always really fun around here. Two whole weeks coming up. And uh, I, one of my roles for VBS every year at Hope Ankeny is uh, I write the, the skits. We have a skit every day that, that helps tie in the Bible story with, you know, just some goofy stuff. And those of us on staff uh, are on part of the cast. And uh, I don't know if I'm the right person to keep writing vacation Bible school skits, but I'm the person who keeps saying yes when they ask me to do it. So uh, I was finishing writing the skits this past week for VBS, and then I sat down to write my sermon for this weekend, but my mind is still in kid mode, vacation Bible school, Hope Island, how do I connect the Bible story to the way children understand things, and we're reading 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter in the Bible, and so my mind just, just went to the greatest love story I know of from when I was a kid, The Princess Bride. You know, the amazing book turned into a movie, uh, it's, it's Wesley and Buttercup, it's timeless, it's so sweet, but... As the young boy who's hearing this story, as his grandfather's reading it to him, uh, the young Fred Savage, he asks, uh, what is this all about? Like, is this, is this really what we're going to talk about today? I mean, is this a kissing book? I'm not into that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that's the chapter we read at weddings. You know, is that what we're going to talk about this weekend? Love? You know, this mushy stuff? That's not what I came to church to talk about. And so I want you to, you know, kind of stick with me because as we explore 1 Corinthians 13, I think we find something deeper in there that's worth revisiting. And I know that I've preached on um, some of these things before. You might have heard me say some of the stuff we're going to talk about this morning or somebody else. And I don't mean for it to be repetitive, uh, but there are certainly some things, especially in our faith life, that are worth repeating. There are some things that are worth revisiting and reviewing time and time again. And this is one of those things. 
In fact, just after our Bible reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, this is what it says. It's up on the screen. Let's read this together out loud. Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So what we're reading here, what we see is that of all of our human experience, the, the things that we experience in this life and for all eternity, the greatest thing that we will experience forever is love. And so even if you've heard some of these things before, it's worth it to continue to remind ourselves of what love, what true love really is, especially the love that we receive from God. Now, a couple of weekends ago when I was preaching, we were starting off on this series through the book of 1 Corinthians. I talked about how the New Testament that we read in the Bible was originally written in the ancient Greek language. Ancient Greek was the trade language of the day, so no matter where you lived around the Mediterranean Sea, everyone spoke and understood Greek because that's how they traded and uh, that Bible was written in Greek and that's how it grew and expanded. Everyone could understand it together. And the nice thing is that there are a lot of similarities between English and ancient Greek, which makes it a little bit easier to understand. But one thing that Greek does really well that English doesn't is it uses multiple words to communicate big ideas. You know, we, in, in English, we might have one word to describe something massive, Greek breaks it down and uses different words. And actually, one of my favorite examples of this is the English word, word. It's going to get a little bit confusing for just a second, but stick with me. The English word, word, we just have one word for that. It doesn't matter if you're hearing words or reading them or writing them, we just have words. Well, actually, in Greek, they use two words to talk about words. Isn't that cool? So the first word they use to talk about words is logos. And this is words that you read. If you're reading the Bible or if you're reading anything on paper, writing something, those words are logos. They are established. They are tangible. You can see them, uh, interact with them. And that's why this word also gets used in ancient Greek to talk about uh, maybe the final word on something or truth itself. You know, tangible representations of an invisible idea. That's what a Logos word is. And those are the words that we read. Now, words that you hear, words that are spoken to you or that you speak, there's a different word for that in Greek. It's the word rhema. These are words, again, that you hear, that you receive auditorily. Not words that you see, but words that you experience from somebody speaking. And it kind of makes sense that those would be two separate ideas because we process communication differently when we're reading it or when we're hearing it. It'd be like if if you came to worship on a weekend and instead of me preaching a sermon, I just stood at the door and I handed out copies of a written transcript of my sermon. It's the same word. Actually, that's not a bad idea. That'd probably save a lot of time, wouldn't it? No, we wouldn't do that because you, you receive, you process written information, words, communication differently than when you hear it. Your brain does different things with those words. And the Bible picks up on this. There are different ways that the Bible uses this dual understanding of communication. So, for example, in in, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's using the word logos in that sense. And it's actually talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word of God, the logos. The the, the tangible representation of the invisible God of the universe. That when we get to know Jesus in a relationship, that is God communicating with us who he is in a way that we can see and experience. 
So when you hear Jesus being talked about in the Bible as the word of God, that's what it means. The, the truth, the way that we can understand God relationally and, and learn from him when we read about his story in the Bible. But then it uses the word rhema in another sense. In fact, in our, in our book that we're reading this month in 1 Corinthians, here's what it says in chapter 2, verse 13. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. And in this verse, it's using the word rhema in a sense that God speaks to us in ways that we understand and process differently than when we read them. That by the Holy Spirit, we can actually receive from God his communication through spiritual ways, in words that we understand differently. And almost you could think of it in your, in your devotional life. You know, that there, there are times when you're reading the Bible as a part of your devotional life, like we're doing through this year at Hope. We're reading through the whole Bible, and we are processing God's communication to us in ways that we can tangibly see. But perhaps in your, in your prayer life, you know, as you're, as you're listening to God, you're communicating with him in prayer. You know, the, the worship team sang a song that said, when, when all the noise dies down and I can linger and listen, we, we are listening for words from God through the Holy Spirit. You know, it, it might not be an auditory message, but an impression or an encouragement, an inspiration from him through the Holy Spirit. That's the rhema, communication of God, that he still speaks to us, and we expect that when we pray. You could almost think of it as, as God's Son, the Logos, and God's Holy Spirit, the Rhema, communicating to us. That's how we can hear from God still. And in fact, there was a, a theologian in the second century named Irenaeus who, who pictured this. And he, the way he envisioned it is he said that you could almost think of the Son and the Spirit, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Logos and the Rhema, as God's two hands reaching into the world to embrace us with his love, to, to communicate with us. That's how much God loves you, that he still wants to speak into your life in, in every possible way that we can understand, both through the, the written word, the testimony of Jesus Christ, his son, and through our prayer life, through the Holy Spirit, actively speaking into our lives. And that's because he loves us. He wants to reach into our world with his two hands to, to embrace us with his love. And love is another one of these words in, in English that we have one word for, just love in general meant to communicate all kinds of different things. In ancient Greek and in the Bible, it actually uses four different words to talk about love. In fact, the, the 20th century theologian and writer C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book about this called The Four Loves. Uh, if you've never read it, I encourage it highly. It's a great book. It explains this far better than I ever could. It's where I got the idea. Um, but this is how Greek talks about love, the different ways that we love people and experience love for ourselves. The first word that Greek uses is the word storge. And we could almost translate this as affection. Sometimes it gets translated that way, or empathy. Um, the way that Lewis describes it that I find really helpful is, he says it's like the, the natural love that a parent has for their child. Right? If, you're, if you have kids, there's something inexplicable about the way that you just love them no matter what. They couldn't do anything to stop you from loving them, even if circumstances are just terrible. The, the love that you have, the natural love and inclination, affection that you have for your child is still there. So, like, for example, I have two kids. Uh, my wife and my kids are, are out in the eastern part of the state visiting her family, and uh, it's never a good thing when you, you, you get out of the shower and you see uh, like six missed calls from your wife and then a bunch of texts that all say, call me, call me, call me, call me. So I called my wife yesterday, 
And my son broke his arm yesterday while they were out visiting family. Immediately, I felt storge, affection for my child, you know, that, that he was hurting, and it didn't matter that he was far away. I feel for, it's that, that phrase, my, your heart goes out to somebody. My heart went out to my son who, who has broken his arm, he's injured, and I can't wait for him to get home today so I can shower him with affection in person. But it's also sort of that, that sense as a parent, and if you, you know, you know, um, my, my son also broke his leg when he was like 18 months old. You're going to think we're terrible parents. Um, it's just kind of who he is, right? It's like, that's my boy. I, I know who he is. He's my son. He is a daredevil, and I love him. You know, I can't help but love him no matter what. And that's that kind of love that the Bible or that ancient Greek talks about. The second word in Greek that means love in English is philia. And it's the word where we get, you know, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Uh, it's that friendship or stronger than acquaintance or friendship, but, but that brotherly or sisterly love that you feel for somebody who isn't related to you, but you still, you love them no matter what. Um, if you have, I have friends in my life who, even if I haven't spoken to them in a couple of years, we can still call each other up and, and pick right up where we left off because we, we experience that kind of brotherly or sisterly love that, that binds us together. That's that sense of love. The, the third way that Greek talks about love is the word eros. And, and this, I think, is what um, in English we typically think of when we hear the word love or when we read it in 1 Corinthians, this might be what comes to mind because we use it pretty much exclusively at weddings. It's the romantic kind of love or, or the feeling, the emotion of being in love with someone. It's uh, the Greek word where we also get the word erotic, but English does a terrible job of translating all of this. It's that emotional sense of, of passion, of, of being in love with another person. So I think that's what, you know, the, the young boy and the princess bride, as his grandfather is reading this story to him, that's what he's afraid of. Is that what we're talking about today? This romantic, gushy, mushy, I don't want to talk about that. That's not what I'm here for. You know, we're, we're not here at church to talk about romance. And, and why are we bringing that up? That's, we, we talk about that at weddings and save it for that. Why do we bring it into the weekend worship? And that's what the boy is worried about as his grandfather's reading this story. But his grandpa says, hold on. Just wait for these characters, get to, get to know them a little bit, hear their story, and see that there's actually a lot more going on in their relationship. There's a deeper kind of love that as you hear and see what they go through in their lives, that you'll begin to appreciate. Let's take a look. Rest, Highness. I know who you are. Your cruelty reveals everything. You're the dread pirate Roberts. Admit it. With pride. What can I do for you? You can die slowly, cut into a thousand pieces. Hardly complimentary, Your Highness. Why lose your venom on me? You killed my love. It's possible. I kill a lot of people. Who was this love of yours? Another prince like this one? Ugly, rich, and scabby? No. A farm boy. Poor. Poor and perfect. With eyes like the sea after a storm. On the high seas, your ship attacked. The dread pirate Roberts never takes prisoners. I can't afford to make exceptions. I mean, once word leaks out that a pirate has gone soft, people begin to disobey you, and then it's nothing but work, work, work all the time. You mock my pain! Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. I remember this farm boy of yours, I think. 
This would be what, five years ago? Does it bother you to hear? Nothing you can say will upset me. He died well. That should please you. No bribe attempts or blubbering. She simply said, please. Please, I need to live. It was the please that caught my memory. I asked him what was so important for him here. True love, he replied. And then he spoke of a girl of surpassing beauty and faithfulness. I can only assume he meant you. You should bless me for destroying him before he found out what you really are. And what am I? Faithfulness he talked of, madam, your enduring faithfulness. Now, tell me truly, when you found out he was gone, did you get engaged to your prince that same hour, or did you wait a whole week out of respect for the dead? You mocked me once, never do it again! I died that day! You can die, too, for all I care! Oh. As you wish! Oh, my sweet Wesley, what have I done? Ow! The production team was helping me put together those clips. They asked if I wanted to cut that off a lot sooner, and I said, no, you can just let it go. It's it doesn't, it doesn't look very romantic, right? That's not what we think of when we think of romantic love or emotional love. It certainly doesn't look like uh, brotherly or sisterly love. It doesn't even look like affection. There's something more that's going on there. You know, when she realizes through his amazing disguise that he actually is Wesley, and that when he says, as you wish, what he means is, I love you, that actually is a, a kind of love that, that we see show up in Scripture. It's the fourth way that uh, ancient Greek describes love. It's the word agape. Agape is this, this perfect kind of love that is self-sacrificing. It's a love that gives away rather than takes. It's a love that says, I want to give something to you so that you will experience my love for yourself and it's the way that the Bible describes God's love for us. Now, I've done a lot of weddings as a pastor in my life, and that means that 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, it comes up a lot. And that's okay. I have no problem with that. But, but one issue that I think does happen when we apply that chapter of the Bible about what love is and what it looks like is we have the tendency to try and make it all about us. And we read that and the, the not-so-subtle implication is that that's what I'm supposed to do, supposed to be, that I need to, to, to try and love that way. And I get, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great aspiration to have. We really ought to try and love in this sacrificial, self-giving way. But if I'm being honest, I, I'm not able to do that most of the time. Even on my best days with the people closest to me, my love is far from perfect you know, I, I, I am still a, a, a flawed human being. The, the, my, my desires are often selfish and, and my love is often weak. It doesn't really measure up to what's being talked about in the Bible. That means that something else must be going on here. One of the best Bible study tools I think I could give you um, as we're reading our Bible this year as a church is to ask the question about any passage that you're reading in Scripture. The first question we should ask is, what does this tell me about who God is? 
That's the first question we should ask about anything we're reading in Scripture. Instead of, and I know that we've been encouraged to ask the question, how should I apply this to my life? It's okay to ask that question, but the first question we need to ask is, what does this passage tell me about who God is? Because the Bible is not about us. It's it's not about us. In fact, just to take the pressure off, on the count of three, I want all of us to say together, it's not about me, okay? One, two, three, it's not about me. That feels so much better. It takes the pressure off, right? This isn't about you. Now, this is for you. This is God's word for you, a tangible expression of his story, of his love, but it's about him. God is the main character of this story. The Bible is God's story of his loving interaction with his creation, with us, the ways that he has pursued us with his love. That means that in any instance, in any circumstance, no matter what the passage is, the first question we ask is, what does this tell me about who God is? And the more we learn about who God is, the more we discover who we are because we are created in God's image. And one of the things that we read in Scripture, 1 John 4, 16, tells us very clearly who God is. It's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. God is love. One more time because I want us to get it. Let's read this out loud. God is love. God just doesn't, doesn't just feel love. He doesn't just do loving things or have an emotional sense of loving people. He is, by his very nature, Love itself. That means that that when we read about love in the Bible, that word is synonymous with God. It's who he is. He is love. And in fact, 1 John, this whole book of the Bible, is, is a great way to understand more about how God is love and what that does for us. Uh, you heard Ashley during the baptism uh, talks about 1 John and, and how we are loved by him. 1 John 4, 19, a couple of verses after this, tells us that we love because God first loved us. That anything loving I do for another person is an outflowing of the way that I have received God's love in my life. So if I want to be a more loving person for my wife, for my kids, for my friends, for whoever, the way for me to become a more loving person isn't to try and will it for myself, to to look at 1 Corinthians 13 and say, I need to be more patient, I need to be more kind, all these things. No, the way for me to become more loving is to receive, accept more of God's love and to let his love fill up my life so that that love overflows onto other people. Because we love because he first loved us. And so that's why as a church, anytime we encourage you and all of us to to invite, invite kids to come to vacation Bible school the next couple of weeks, invite your neighbors and your friends to come to Taste of Hope, pick up, you know, a a bag of cookies from the cafe after service and don't eat them yourself, but give them away as invitations to come to Taste of Hope. We're not doing that to try and manipulate you or other people or to sell somebody on something or to try to look impressive. I promise if you come to Vacation Bible School and you see me in the skit, it does not look impressive or cool. We do all of these things because we want other people to experience the love and the joy that we have received in a relationship with Jesus. That's the reason why. That that as an outflowing of the love you have received from God, that that would compel you to invite other people. 
In fact, in in 2 Corinthians, it says the love of Christ has compelled me. That's why we do loving things. That's what makes us more loving people as his followers, as a church. And we invite because we want people to experience the love that we have experienced from him. That's the reason why we do it. So so let's ask this this question. Let's ask this question. If, If 1 Corinthians 13 is about God, what does this tell us about who God is? And if God is love, it tells me that love is patient which means that God is patient. And I wonder if you, when you think about God and your relationship with him, do you think of somebody who is patient with you? Because a lot of times when I talk to people who struggle in their faith life, what I hear from them is, is not a sense that God is patient, but that he is demanding. That's who people think of when they think about God, unfortunately, that he wants more from us, that he expects, demands, insists on more from us. I even hear people say things like, I just feel like I'm not doing enough for God. And I want to tell you very clearly that when I read scripture and get to know who God is, I don't think the word enough is in God's vocabulary. There is, we often say that there, you couldn't do anything to make God love you any less. But the opposite is also true. Because God's love is perfect, self-sacrificing love, you couldn't do anything to make him love you anymore. He loves you perfectly and completely today. The person you are is the person he created you to be. And he is continually refining us, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Again, that's what we talked about. The word of God continually pouring into our lives is transforming us, is renewing us every day. But he does it patiently. That's his love for you. Next, it says that love is kind, and if God is love, that means that God is kind. And I wonder, again, as you think about your relationship with God, is that one of the first things that comes to mind? Do you think of somebody who is kind when you think about God? Because, again, I, I talk to people all the time who, when they picture God, what, they, what comes to their mind is a, an impatient, demanding, uh, somebody who is angry with them, that God is upset with me all the time, and that he is on the lookout for ways to punish me for the things that I have done. That's what people think of when they think about God. But this says something different. This says that God is kind because God is love. He is looking on you with loving kindness, the Bible says. Not just here, but, but plenty of other places. In fact, there's a, a little book in the New Testament called Titus, another letter in the New Testament. It has this great summary verse of what we call the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you, anyone ever asks you, what's the gospel? You know, just like really quick, this would be a great verse to point people to. Titus 3, 4, and 5 says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That's who God is. He is full of kindness and full of love. He He wouldn't have sacrificed his own son. God so loved the world, agape, that he gave his only son. He wouldn't have done that if it weren't for his abundant kindness and his love and his mercy. He he pursues us with his love. He gives of himself because this is who he is. Let's keep going. What else do we learn about God? Again, we're we're reading this asking not what, who am I? Not asking what can I learn about myself? How should I apply this to my life? We're just asking the question, what does this passage tell me about who God is? And if God is love and love is not self-seeking... That means God is not self-seeking. God is not in it for himself. 
There's this flawed notion that, that still exists, that I still hear about in Christianity still today. It sounds something, maybe you've heard it before, it sounds like this. That God needed to create the world and God needed to create people because God needs worshipers. That's still an idea that floats around Christianity today and it's completely wrong. God doesn't need anything from you or from anyone. There's an entire theological doctrine called divine self-sufficiency, that God has everything he needs in himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is complete, lacking nothing. We don't add anything to God's existence. God doesn't need you, which opens up the door for amazing news. Because God doesn't need you, the reason you're here, the reason he made you, is because he wanted to. That God didn't make you out of necessity. He made you because he wants you to be here. He, he looked out at creation and he said, something's missing. It's you. I need you to be a part of this. And he put you here for a reason. And if you've ever doubted that, wondered why you're here, it's because God wants you to be here. He loves you that much that he made you for no other reason that he wants you to be a part of his creation. And God doesn't make any mistakes. He made you on purpose with love and kindness in mind. And then he sent his son into our world to rescue us, to save us because of his kindness. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And if God is love, God keeps no record of wrongs. Is that something you think about when you think about God? Many people I talk to, when they, when they envision God, they think of somebody who is, who is impatient, demanding, angry, a, a wrathful, vengeful judge who is sitting on, on his heavenly throne with the ledger of your life in his lap. And every time you make a mistake, he's just making a tick mark and he's waiting for the day when, when you stand before him and he's going to accuse you of everything wrong that you ever did. Keeping track of our lives, keeping score. But when we read scripture and we read about who is God and what is God, that's not who we see. Not just here, but, but everywhere throughout the Bible. In fact, I'll give you a spoiler alert for, for the next chapter of the Bible, the next book. We're in 1 Corinthians, the second book to the Corinthians. In chapter 5 says this, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. God made him who had no sin, which is Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The moment you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when you declare Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God forgets your sins. He does not remember your sins, and he keeps no record of them. Because when he looks at you, he sees, all he sees is a daughter and a son, who he gave his life to save and to rescue, that you are covered in the love of Christ forever in a relationship with him. That's what God sees when he looks at you, again, with abundant, perfect love. Love always protects, on the next slide. Always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So again, we keep asking, what does this tell me about who God is? Because this is about him. God protects, trusts, hopes. God doesn't give up on us. Whatever you might be going through in your life right now, God sees it and God recognizes it as a place where he wants to 
not condemn or to hurt, but to help. Because that's how much he loves us. And if love never fails, that means that God never fails. His love, his eternal perfect love for us is the the only love that we can rely on that never fails, that never lets us down. And that his plans for us and for the world, even his salvation plan through his son Jesus Christ, that he gave his life on the cross to set us free from our sins, that is not failure, that is actually victory on the cross and resurrection from the dead. That's how much God loves us, that he would give his life to set us free. Actually, that shows up in, in The Princess Bride. So, so Wesley is on a mission to save Buttercup. And as he is trying to do that, he ends up losing his own life. But all that means is that he needs a miracle. Let's take a look. I've seen worse. Sir? Yes. Sir? Huh? We're in a terrible rush. Don't rush me, Sonny. You rush a miracle, man, you get rotten miracles. You got money? 65. I never worked for so little, except once, and that was a very noble cause. This is noble, sir. His wife is crippled. Children are on the brink of starvation. Are you a rotten liar? I need him to help avenge my father. Murdered these 20 years. Your first story was better. Where's that bellows cram? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. He's dead. He can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. Hey! Hello in there! Hey, what's so important? What you got here, that's worth living for. That's what's worth living for. That was what was worth dying for, for Jesus, his love for you. And he offers it freely to anyone who accepts him. That, that his, his hands are reaching out into your world to, to save you, to communicate with you, to, to let you know how much he loves you. And our response to that simply gets to be to receive it, to, to be wrapped up in the arms of Jesus who, who says, I love you and you're welcome into my family. That we get to say yes to God who has already said yes to us because of his love for us. So let's stand up together. The worship team is going to lead us in one more song, again, about his amazing love for us.